So we continue in our series through John's Gospel. We've got up to chapter 12. If you'd like to turn to that, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, But not um, preach on every verse, otherwise we'd be here a long time. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Well, I'd like you to imagine, if you are willing, that you are someone in that large crowd that has gathered along the dusty road coming into Jerusalem from Bethany just before the Passover that we now call Good Friday. It's the morning of Palm Sunday, now just five days before that momentous day. Imagine, if you can, that all you know about Jesus of Nazareth is what someone in that crowd would have learned from the events described in this 12th chapter of John's Gospel. John wrote about them, just as we've read, but you heard of them, even as they were happening. Let's put on those blinkers, as it were, and constrain our vision to the happenings in this chapter, simply so that we can focus on what the Spirit is saying to us, as uh, John has recorded for it here, uh, it here for us. And then we'll go on to think about the question, how am I going to respond to what I know about Jesus just from these events and this teaching? So two simple questions, no heavy theological terms in my headings. Just, first of all, what do you know? 
What do you know if you were one of those in the crowd at that time? And secondly, what are you going to do with that information now that you know it? So the first question, what do you know? Assume that you're someone in what I'll call the Bethany crowd that's referred to in verse 9 and verse 17. The crowd that had been with Jesus in Bethany when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. That, of course, was the extraordinary miracle that we were looking at last Sunday evening. There is another crowd. That's the crowd referred to in verse 12, which I'll call the Hosanna crowd, though I suspect that it wasn't long before those two crowds were quite mixed and intermingled. But you're part of the Bethany crowd. And as such, you know that Jesus had summoned a corpse out of the tomb just a matter of weeks before. The dead man had arisen in response to Jesus' call. He had no choice. The Son of God had summoned him out of the tomb, and he was alive today. That's the first thing you know about Jesus. When he summons the dead from their tombs, all of their bodily corruption and disintegration, even their total brain death, is reversed, and they arise And their minds and their memories and their movements are all miraculously restored. You had been in Bethany when that happened. You heard it firsthand. Perhaps even you saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, or you saw him soon afterwards. But by now, who hadn't heard about it? This was massive news, not just in Bethany, but the whole district. John is very clear in his recording of it. He can't help telling us three times that Lazarus was raised from the dead. He has no qualms about repeating himself. Verse 1, verse 9, verse 17. Just like, no doubt, everyone in that crowd was repeating the same stories, the same things that they had heard, repeating it endlessly as that story spread. Everyone in this large crowd knew about it. Very probably everyone in the Hosanna crowd as well. And everyone knew at that time, just as everyone knows today, that brain death is irreversible. And everyone then knew probably rather better than they know today that something like this had been prophesied many centuries earlier. You and those in the crowd had been taught the Hebrew scriptures from infancy. You would know Ezekiel's prophecy that God alone could and one day would summon a whole valley of dry bones back to life with a word. And you're a witness of something very like that. Not a whole valley full at this time, but Lazarus was a forerunner of a valley full. So you're standing at the roadside now because you want to see more of this Lazarus. Even more than that, you want to see the man who summoned him back to life. And you wonder to yourself, Who could he be if not the God of the Valley of Dry Bones? You also have heard that just before Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, he had described himself as the resurrection and the life. Well, that's quite a name to call yourself, isn't it? If anyone else had called himself the resurrection and the life, you would consider him delusional. But for this man, well... It's hardly out of place, given what he then did. So if he's going to be coming along the Bethany Road this morning, 
you're going to be there. You want to look this resurrection and the life in the eyes as he passes you. But before he comes along, there's something else that you already know about this Jesus. You're standing where you're standing at the moment because you know, and in fact the whole Bethany crowd knows, that both Jesus and Lazarus had been at a dinner last night, just a couple of miles up the road in Bethany itself. Verse 9. You learned that Jesus was there, there at the dinner in Bethany. Jesus and Lazarus too. That's why you know that he'll be coming in on the Bethany Road this morning. When they head into Jerusalem, as they're expected to do, you're standing in the right place to see them. So you've heard that Lazarus had been at that dinner, breathing and eating and talking and enjoying table fellowship with the one who had restored his putrefying body. It was reported that his tomb had been full of the stench of death by the time Jesus summoned him out of it. His sisters had been perhaps a little too graphic in sharing about that. But last night, according to the word on the streets, Lazarus was in a dining room that was drenched in an utterly different fragrance. Quite as powerful, but much more pleasant. In the tomb of weeping, there had been the fragrance of death. But at the table of feasting, there was the fragrance of life. So it wasn't too surprising to hear that his sister Mary had rather gone to town in her desire to celebrate her brother's resurrection and indeed Jesus' great kindness to him. And that she had celebrated by pouring out her most expensive heirloom on Jesus' feet. No doubt he was busy talking and teaching and and eating And she didn't want to distract him from that by pouring it over his head, mid-sentence or mid-mouthful. So quietly but exuberantly, instead she does what is actually rather embarrassing. She anoints his feet, which are pointing away from the table where he's reclining. That's okay. But then she wipes off the excess with her unbundled hair. And that's not really okay, even by the standards of the day. But so much for social conventions... They weren't going to hold her back. She was beside herself with joy. And who can blame her? Who indeed? We'll come back to that. So this story as well is going through your mind as you're standing there waiting at the roadside. But actually it's not just the Lazarus story that's being talked about. The Hosanna crowd hadn't been in Bethany. But they too have been swapping plenty of stories about the signs and wonders about Jesus that, and what he's been doing. They too were part of the heaving masses who had come in from all over the country for the Passover feast. And these crowds are massive. Standing there on the day, you won't know this, but a Jewish contemporary historian called Josephus will later claim that something like 2.7 million people flooded into Jerusalem for the Passovers around that time. Now, later historians will doubt his estimate because it's more than the city could possibly hold. But even they are suggesting that something like a million would squeeze themselves into those ancient streets. So a bit like King's Parade in the summer, I suppose. But the Hosanna crowd, it seems, were not just regarding Jesus as a wandering miracle worker. Some of them were saying that he would soon be bringing in some kind of golden age for the Jewish nation. 
that he was some kind of liberator or even a king. The excitement was building and, and was enormous. So as soon as he appears through the heat haze in the distance, they start shouting, Hosanna. They're quoting Psalm 118, of course. And as we noted a few weeks ago, Hosanna means save us, please. Hosanna. They shouted that repeatedly. And also the next words of the psalm as well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To which they added, the king of Israel. Save us from what, you wonder? From the Romans or from our self-serving religious leaders? I suppose to be saved from both would be good. But you don't have time to think about that further because the shouting is getting louder as Jesus and his party approach. Will he be dressed as a king? Will he be on a white horse with a sword in his hand? But soon enough you see them coming along the road towards you, now almost in touching distance. But that's strange. He's on a donkey. That must signify something, humility perhaps. And then another bell rings in your head, something again you learnt in your earliest scripture lessons. Zechariah, wasn't it? Yes, the coming Messiah would be righteous and bringing salvation, coming to you mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So perhaps this is starting to add up, the Messiah, able to give life to the dead, righteous yet humble, bringing salvation for Israel. This Jesus seems to fit the bill. Is this he, you think, as he passes by in front of you? So you've got a great deal to think about that night. Lazarus, the dinner party, the donkey. But do you know enough yet to commit your life to following him? As one of the Pharisees put it, verse 19, are you persuaded yet to go after him as so many others seem to be doing? Well, if that's not enough yet, then the following day you're given a few more things to think about. You hear that he's been saying some strange things about his death. In fact, according to all the reports of his teaching, he keeps on talking about his death, almost as if he's expecting it. At that dinner, so rumor has it, he had told his guests that the rest of the perfume was to be kept for his burial, and that you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Well, that's fair enough, I suppose. It's good to plan ahead. That could be a long way ahead. But now some more things are coming out. Apparently, he had told some Greeks, some some Gentile Jews who'd gone to see him, that it was going to be like a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying, and that that needed to happen if it was ever going to produce a crop. Well, that's obviously right. That's how crops work. But he seemed to be talking about himself as if he needed to die to achieve this crop, whatever the crop might be. And he was talking about the hour having come, as if this was imminent. He also spoke of being troubled, troubled in his soul, he was saying, which I suppose you would be if you knew you were about to die. But straight after that, there had been some strange thunder noises, which some said was a voice from heaven. But you hadn't seen any thunderclouds in the sky or lightning. And then he was telling people that he would die by being lifted up. And those who heard him understood that to be talking about his death 
as well. Because they actually said to him, if you're the Messiah, you shouldn't be talking like that, or, or words to that effect, because the Messiah will remain with us forever. But he just kept on talking about only being here a little while longer. Now, we all know that the authorities don't like him. Word went out a while ago that if anyone spotted him, they were to report him to the temple guards, and he'd be arrested. And there are rumors that that's the least they wanted to do to him. They were a jealous, self-serving bunch. We all knew that. But if that's why Jesus is troubled, then why ride into town and cause such a, such a scene, such a stir in the full view of everyone? That doesn't make much sense. Unless, I suppose, he knows that he will only achieve what he intends to achieve by dying, by being killed, even. So you carry on trying to make sense of all this, trying to put two and two together. So what have we got so far? We've got a man who claims to be the resurrection and the life. And he's got a pretty sound basis for calling himself that. If you can raise one corpse to life, presumably you can raise a valley full. He's a man who seems to be fulfilling other ancient prophecies as well, like the Messiah riding in on the donkey. And he's teaching that he needs to die to fulfill his mission, with the authorities apparently only too willing to help him on his way. But then finally, there's this latest report that you've just heard about what he's been teaching. He's saying, whoever believes in me will no longer remain in darkness. Verse 46 in John's account. People are wondering what he means. It's clear enough that he's connecting, believing in him with eternal life. And he's not now just talking about resurrection for a few more years in this world as he's done for Lazarus. He's being pretty clear that how we respond to him is relevant to where we will be for eternity. It's all about allegiance. Either we reject him and live for this world, verse 25 and verse 48, or we believe in him and follow him and receive eternal life and be honored by his father, verse 26 and verse 50. The father is the one to whom we have heard him addressing his prayers. He must mean God as his father. Even before he raised Lazarus, he was talking about the glory of God and about himself as the son of God. So we know what he means by the father. He's also saying that there is an urgency about it. Walk in the light while you have it, he's saying. Darkness is coming. So, essentially, that is what you would know if you had been in that crowd these last few days. What you wouldn't know, but would soon discover, was that the darkness was indeed coming. Chapter 12 marks the end of Jesus' public teaching ministry. Whether you were one of the Bethany crowd or the Hosanna crowd, you could not expect any further teaching or miracles from him, besides what he had already given to you, at least not that side of the cross. So that's what you know. The follow-on question is, is simply, what are you going to do with what you know, now that you know it? What are you going to do with Jesus' unambiguous self-designation as the resurrection and the life, with his unambiguous call to believe in him and his summons to follow him? And his promise of eternal life to those who do.
Well, there are a number of things that you can do with what you now know. Let's look briefly through some of the responses to it that we see in this passage. You can be very excited by it, like so many in both the Bethany crowd and the Hosanna crowd. The Jesus story has everything that makes a story exciting. It has drama, it has pathos, it has heroism, it has tragedy. That was a Passover to remember that year. Although, of course, today's drama quickly gets pushed aside by tomorrow's. How quickly we move on to the next thing. How many of those who went after Jesus, verse 19, were still going after him by the end of that week even? But perhaps you've been more deeply affected by what you've seen and heard than some others in that crowd. You've taken to heart Jesus' warnings that this is about eternal life and salvation and the coming judgment of God. You've taken him seriously because his credentials are such that he deserves to be taken seriously. Who else has ever raised a dead man to life? But then you start thinking about the cost. The cost for a good many was just too high, verse 42. Many in the crowd believed in him. Many even among the authorities. There was no rational reason to disbelieve. The facts were not in dispute. Oh, but the cost, the loss of friends, the sneering, the criticism, the risk of losing status and position. That was particular concern for those who had most to lose, of course, those who had a status, those who were of the authorities. Being known as a Christian was not going to increase their chances of a promotion next year. But others in the crowd, perhaps they weren't put off by the cost, but they had unanswered questions like those in verse 34. Good questions. Why does the Son of Man need to be lifted up to die, for example? That doesn't square with our preconceptions. How exactly will his death, when it happens, lead to the eternal blessings that he's talking about in this chapter? And why did Jesus begin his discourse, verse 27, by saying, My soul is troubled, but nonetheless walk straight into the authorities' trap? There will always be things that we don't understand. Those in the Bethany crowd, for example, had no idea that verses 27 and 28, if you just look at those again, would be more or less repeated just a few days later in an olive grove outside Jerusalem, just before Jesus was arrested. There in Gethsemane, Jesus would again be praying to his father. He would again be talking about his soul being troubled, even sorrowful unto death. Perhaps he had Psalm 43 that we sang earlier in mind, as he did. In his humanity, he would greatly desire this cup of suffering to be taken away from him. But he would nevertheless submit himself in his humanity to the divine will of the triune God, knowing that this is why he had come. Why so? Well, to die as the Son of God, as a man on a Roman cross, taking upon himself all the sins of his people and all the righteous anger of God at those sins. That's why he was troubled. That's why he was lamenting. 
and how much sin we have given him to lament about. But he was offering himself as a willing sacrifice, all so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, we all have unanswered questions. I haven't answered half the questions that you could ask about this passage. You're probably grateful for that. But we have all heard enough to commit ourselves without reservation into the hands of the only one in all history who can plausibly claim to be the resurrection and the life. That's why I call this sermon, What More Do You Need to Know? Rhetorical. We all know enough to get off the fence. The Bethany crowd had heard enough. They had been there when Lazarus was raised to life. The pressing question for them was simply, what will you do with what you know? Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they had all seen and heard enough. And they showed it by their love for Jesus and their desire to serve him and be with, with, and be with him. We, this side of the cross, have heard more than enough. We know that Lazarus's resurrection was just a foretaste of Christ's resurrection. And Christ's resurrection guarantees ours if we will turn from our sin and turn to him who has borne away our sin as the savior of the world. What more do we need to know? If you want to wait until you see the whole valley of dry bones rising up before committing yourself to him, that'll be way too late. I hardly need mention the other possible responses to this information that we see in this chapter. There were, of course, the chief priests, verse 10, uh, and the Pharisees, verse 19, whose jealousy and irrational fury drive them to kill. What had Lazarus done to deserve their anger? They were so intent on holding on to the glory that comes from man that they were willing to throw away forever any blessing that comes from God. And then, of course, there's Judas back in verse 4 with his fatal desire to enrich himself with 300 denarii. That's a year's wage for a laborer. So it would have been nice to have. You can see why he thought it a waste, poured out under his nose, merely for the sake of honoring Jesus Christ and his imminent sacrifice. Being denied those 300 denarii, A few days later, he settles for 30 pieces of silver, which is worth only about a third as much as the perfume. Either way, it's a poor deal. Having failed to pocket a year's wage for a laborer, he finds himself paying back the wages of sin year after year for eternity. And that's what Judas has been doing today. So Judas and the Pharisees are tragic figures, because they squander the revelation of Jesus Christ that has been given to them. And in doing so, they squander the hope of eternal life that was right under their noses. They squander heaven and thereby choose hell. But actually, they are no more tragic than those who squander that revelation without an overt show of hostility. Those who are excited for a day and then walk away will spend just as long regretting their folly as they too must pay back the wages of sin for eternity. If you won't have Christ as your debt payer, the only other option is to pay it yourself. Those who sit on the fence waiting for all their questions to be answered, they too will end up in the same place as Judas and the Pharisees. 
and they won't be great company. At the end of the day, there are only two destinies illustrated in this chapter. So if you're sitting on the fence, what more do you need to know? That takes us to a final look at what Jesus tells us in verse 23 again. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For Jesus, the hour had indeed come for him to be glorified by his Father as he went to the cross, died, and was raised to eternal life, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But the hour has also come for each of us today, for Jesus Christ, to be glorified. Be in no doubt that we glorify him by believing in him, serving him, following him, trusting him, trusting that very soon the reward will be to be with him where he is. So just notice as I finish that when he says, follow me in this chapter, verse 26, it doesn't mean quite the same as it meant when he first called his disciples to follow him. Three years earlier, following him would have been a very exciting adventure. Follow me in this chapter means follow me to where I will be a few days hence on Good Friday, lifted up onto a Roman cross, which is a rather different proposition, isn't it? So have you heard enough to commit to following Jesus Christ, to where his Father will honor him, and indeed you, even if it means going via the cross? Let us pray. We thank you, Lord God, for all that you have shown us about Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you have shown us enough to trust him and follow him because there is no one else to trust and follow. So we praise you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross for us. We ask that by your spirit, we may be those who trust and serve and follow you as the one who is the resurrection and the life. We have no hope of eternal life without you. We have the most wonderful hope of eternal life with you, where you are, enjoying the love and honor of your heavenly Father. So help us, Lord, to trust and follow him, we pray. Amen.